Okay, good evening. Okay, before I um, show you some pictures here, uh, is that me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's us. Um, that's my beautiful wife. Uh, her name is Lucy. And that's our two kids. The older one is Karis. And the younger one, which is a month now, his name is Lucas. So Karis and Lucas. Uh, before uh, we look at the other pictures, and I want to share uh, this uh, verse that God burdened my heart with this verse uh, six years ago during missions conference. Uh, it says in Romans 10, uh, first one, it says, My br- uh, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. So God spoke to my heart uh, six years ago about uh, my island and people on face, and now we're serving there, praise the Lord. So that's our family. And uh, first slide here, that's our um, church building. Um, maybe, I, I don't remember how many years ago, but that's about 2010. That's our uh, church building. That's before I came to, uh, to Harvest, attend the HBBC, and Pastor Roll started church there. It started in our, uh, our house. Uh, my dad and my mom, uh, we started Bible study with Pastor Roll and his family in our house. And then my dad gave uh, this piece of land, so we started to clean it with our small group Bible study. And then we built that uh, church building there. So that's our first uh, church building in 2010. And that's the second one when uh, we need more space, uh, which is... Uh, our pastor, Pastor Roland, uh, he sits, he's uh, one uh, coconut, uh, one copra, that's where he sit on it, and then he preach. <laughs> so uh, that, that's the time I was uh, still a teenager, helping uh, uh, Pastor Roland with the youth and songs and stuff like that before I came here. So that's our second uh, building, our uh, building number two, uh, when we, uh, the church started growing. And then that's our building now. That's the church building now. Uh, thank the Lord. Uh, thank you, Harvest, so much for praying and all the support that's um, uh, come out from it. And uh, we know that the answers of the prayer. And that's what I want to thank you all for it. Because uh, I want to I present that to all of us tonight to know that God is working. Amen. Amen. And uh, that's our VBS last summer. Uh, that's a lot of kids, which is uh, the whole island kids. So they're how, uh, they're, they come for our uh, uh, VBS, and uh, those are the snacks. <laughs> so, um, which is, we look at the snack, and you already know that there's a lot of parents volunteer to help. <laughs> so, and which is, it, which is good, not for the snack, but they also come and then they, they attend, they go with their kids and they listen to the gospel as their teacher uh, share with them. So we're thankful for, uh, for that, that we can even help out with and the harvest, I mean, the, the parents, they come and then it's because of all your prayer, God is working on the island of ice. So, and uh, that's also part of it. And so they, uh, you can see that there's a two building now, uh, the, the second building for our church building. We're using it for like split session when we have Sunday school and then the men will go to the local one and then the ladies will stay in the, in the concrete one for their, for their uh, uh, Sunday school. And we also use it for 
a split session for the youth and the kids too. That's a, a last year team camp um, on the other side of the island on the, the beach that my dad also uh, gave it to the church for uh, to do it for our uh, youth uh, camp and even some Sundays that the, the family members they wanted to take their their whole family for picnic or and then we allow them to go there for uh, for picnic. So uh, for that, a lot of pitch, a lot of things that I want to thank you, Harvest, for. You know, you remember the shirts, those uh, t-shirts they're using. Uh, Pastor uh, Pastor Walton and the team came last spring break. They brought those, and uh, uh, we use for our team camp. Uh, that's uh, two teams, yellow fin and blue fin. You can you can see their fin. <laughs> so. <clears throat> Yeah, uh, those are the shirts that are uh, donated by Harvest. And I want, uh, I want to show that so everybody will see it. God answers prayer and all the support that we're using in the, out there in the ministry. And uh, this is, uh, me just came from fishing. That's, that's where we, uh, how we feed the people for the people that came for our youth camp, the teens. We go and spear fish and at night and we have to, to fry the fish and feed them. Because we went to the beach and we stayed there for the whole week. So we have three coins and the ladies or the girls, they stay in one and the boys stay in one. And then we also have security, which is uh, Chafin and Chester. They're here now. <laughs> They're our security that they make sure that the boys are not, uh, you know, running around or the girls are at night. <laughs> but <clears throat> Pastor Roll asked me to, uh, if, if I can supervise the security, which I cannot because I am the speaker that week. So six o'clock and I'm already sleeping. So we have Chester and Chavin to help out for security. So thank the Lord. And uh, those are the ladies uh, cooking. Uh, we have, uh, uh, there's some uh, parents that they're willing to come and spend the whole week with us on the other side of the island. Because they are the one cooking for, for the youth. Thankful for them. And if you see that girl on the other side, uh, the bottom one, which is this one. That's uh, Stella, also graduated from here. She's serving faithfully on FICE right now, helping us a lot. She's teaching uh, kids for Sunday school and uh, Monday uh, kids ministry. So we're thankful for her. And that's our uh, church building inside. Some uh, uh, teen girls, they want to sing special. And that's, the other one is not Kmart. That's uh, <laughs> That's FICE Kmart, but... <laughs> That's our store for VBS. And all those stuff in there, you know, donated by Harvest. You know, you guys send a lot of uh, stuff for us, and we're using it for VBS. Uh, they're earning points by memorizing their verses. And then we give them points if, like, uh, first that they, they memorize one first and 500 points. And then each, uh, we have first all the whole week, uh, every day. And then if they memorize the first, and then uh, the, the sponsor or the teachers will check mark, and then at uh, uh, the end of the week, they can come to store and uh, get stuff. Like one t-shirt is 100 points, so we're taking off from their point for memorizing verses. So if you want a shirt, you can come and memorize first. And <laughs> but you cannot memorize first and go to Kmart, but... And uh, that's uh, last Christmas. Uh, that's our uh, Christmas party. 
We're thankful. Uh, many, many people uh, praise the Lord for, uh, for that. So um, looking at the picture, I missed them already. But I'm encouraged that I'm with you. So that's all. Thank you very much, and God bless you. Take your Bible tonight. Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, a familiar text I trust for you in relationship to missions, but I also trust not so familiar to you that the significance of it has been lost on your heart and that it might not be lost on my heart as well. I want to remind you of the little statement I'm going to make at the beginning of each one of our times together, and that is the statement in relationship to your theme, the untold millions still untold. That statement being this, that untold billions of unbelievers remaining still untold is a clarion call to untold millions of believers to do everything possible to get the gospel to them. It's not enough for us to be satisfied and say, well, untold millions are still untold, that's too bad. I hope that's never our thought. I hope that's never our actions, even if it's not really our intentional thought. I trust instead we realize that that is clearly a call from God for us to do everything we possibly can in this short little time we have on planet Earth to try to get the gospel to as many people as possible. And so we've emphasized a couple of different things in our messages already. The first one was that we should do that by loving the lost like the Lord does. We got a glimpse of one of those three parables there in the book of Luke in relationship to the lady that lost the coin, illustrating that idea we could have looked at the lost sheep parable. We could have looked at the lost son or the, what we call the prodigal son. All three of those parables, though, are teaching the same point as Jesus is emphasizing to the skeptics, to the Pharisees, that uh, there was a reason he spent time with sinners. And that was because he loved them and wanted them to come to believe in who he was as the Messiah. And so I trust that you, even over the course of the last 36 hours or, or so since that message, you've been thinking about whether or not you love lost people like Jesus loves them. We will never reach the world. We will never go across the planet if we won't go across the street in reaching people for Christ. And so that's, that's significant. That's important. The second thing that we emphasized them more briefly last night was by, by doing what you can to, to spread the gospel, by spreading the gospel so that members of every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation will someday worship at the feet of Jesus. What a wonderful day that will be when Revelation 5 comes true. And people from every tri tribe, tongue, nation uh, get to gather around the, the throne of God and worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're striving to do is, as gospel preachers, as gospel messengers, is to make it so those folks will be able to join us around the throne. Well, tonight I want to talk about helping in the harvest. I want to talk about helping in the harvest. Because the third way is that, by, by helping in the harvest of souls. And it's that that Jesus is speaking of here in Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And I want to, want to start there, even though our focus will be on the latter verses of this portion of Scripture, where, where the Bible says this, Matthew 9, 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues. And so you'll notice the different words that are used there. He's in the cities, the larger areas, the larger population centers, and then he's in the villages, and then he's in the synagogues, and all of those then represent his interaction with people. So as he is in the cities and the villages and the synagogues, he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But then notice what it says in verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he what? He was moved with 
compassion. It's not that he was overwhelmed by so many people, so little time. No, instead, he was moved with compassion by, by the sight of the, of the multitudes. And then it goes on to describe why. Because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. They were scattered like sheep having no sense of direction, no one to teach them, no one to guide them, which of course is what the gospel does. But then notice what he goes on to say. He, he changes the metaphor a little bit from sheep to a different metaphor when in verse 37 he says this to then his disciples. Verse 37, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I mentioned a little bit yesterday about my upbringing in rural Nebraska. And I know that if you've not been to the mainland, that that maybe you don't uh, have a full understanding of the significance of living in Nebraska. But Nebraska really, I mean, even their football team, they're called the Corn Huskers. And so that kind of right there tells you something about them, that they would choose as a mascot somebody that husks corn. That seems a little odd, does it not? I mean, I had a friend that used to make fun of me. He's with the Lord now, but he used to make fun of me because he wouldn't call my corn huskers corn huskers. He would call them the corn shuckers, which I don't, I don't know what the difference between a corn shucker and a corn husker is, but he thought it was funny anyway. And so that says a little bit about Nebraska that, that they would call their mascot for the University of Nebraska the corn huskers. Obviously, corn's a big deal there because that's really all there is, is corn, okay? In terms of it being an agricultural state. And Iowa's no better. Iowa's the same way. Actually, Iowa probably has more corn than, than Nebraska does. And I spent many years of ministry and went to Bible college and seminary in, in Iowa. And so those states, that's really what they're known for. They're not known for a whole lot other than they raise enough corn and soybeans to kind of feed the whole world. It's really amazing how much they produce, even in a small amount of space, that really does feed, feed the entire world. So as a kid growing up, we, I grew up, we didn't have our own farm, but I grew up working on farms. All of my relatives around us, my uncles and cousins, were farmers. And so as a kid, it was, it was kind of cool to get to be a little bit a part of, of farming. And then I got to be a teenager. And, you know, if you grow up on a farm, the goal of, of being a teenager growing up on a farm is getting to drive the big tractors. All right? So I drove my first tractor at age nine. Now, my first tractor was as old as my dad, so it was a little on the ancient side. But at least I got to drive a tractor at age nine. I even got to drive to the neighbors on the tractor at age nine. I thought that was pretty cool. And so that was a part of growing up, but part of growing up then also was is that the most exciting time of the year for the farmer was what? Harvest. Yeah, the most exciting time of the year was the harvest because you had spent all of your entire spring and summer putting these crops in the ground, hoping that the right rain would come, fertilizing and spraying for the weeds and the bugs and cultivating and doing all these other things in hopes that by fall time, you would get a harvest and that you would get a good harvest. And so the favorite time of the year, of course, would be harvest. Then I remember as a teenager, my first experiences of getting to help in the harvest. And that was a big deal. And you know what? It's never really gotten old for me. Even though I've been a long ways from a farm for a long time, I had the opportunity of pastoring in northern Iowa in a rural community and, and, and I had a number of farmers in my church when I was pastoring there. And, and when harvest time came around, I hoped that one of them would ask me to help. I mean, I, I hoped that I could sit, you know, at the top of a, 
a big old combine, you know, they, they pay like $300,000 for one of these combines to harvest the corn and the, and the soybeans and, and be a part of driving that combine or maybe even one of their tractors. I mean, after all, th- these tractors will have 400 horsepower, all right? So sitting on top of something with 400 horsepower just does something for your manliness, all right? And so I, I, I hope that, and typically each year I would get to help in the harvest. And so I always look forward to that, whether as a teenage young person or even as a pastor in his 30s, I enjoyed the opportunity to help in the harvest. Well, tonight I want us to see from this passage of Scripture that that is what Jesus is speaking about. He's speaking about the needs of the world, the souls of mankind, and he's describing the souls of mankind in those kinds of terms as being the harvest. Notice how he puts it there in verse 36. It says this, when, when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And then verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so the Lord wants us to get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls. He's directing our attention to the needs of the world and describing the world in in those kinds of terms as as the harvest of souls. And so tonight, as we think about getting involved in the worldwide harvest and helping in the harvest, I want us to note three different aspects that Jesus points out here in these last two verses of Scripture, verse 37 and verse 38. The first one is this, the size of the harvest. The size of the harvest. Notice the way Jesus puts it here. In verse 37, it says, the harvest truly is plentiful. It's truly plentiful. And as you think about that in relationship to farming or in relationship to spiritual harvest, there there are a couple of things that come to my mind in relationship to, to actual harvest on a farm, but also that I think apply to the harvest of souls. And number the first one is this: that when you think about a harvest, there there ought to be a spirit of excitement. There really ought to be a, a spirit of excitement. You know, for the farmer, it's no, there's no better time of the year. This is harvest time. This is when the fruit of their labors come to fruition. But the same ought to be true when it comes to souls, is that there ought to be a spirit of excitement when Jesus says that the harvest is plenteous. He's not saying there's not going to be any crop. He's not, he's not saying, you know, that this is going to result in crop failure. You will get nothing back. There, there's nothing to harvest. No, Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful. There, think of it this way, there are no lack or there's no lack of souls on planet earth tonight that need Jesus, right? And so that ought to really excite us in, in terms of that opportunity because that wasn't just true in that day, that is true in our day that the, the harvest is truly plentiful. That ought to give us a spirit of excitement. We ought to, in the, in the spirit even of Galatians 6, 9, not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart, we're told. If God calls you to be a missionary, there will, there will never be a lack of work. There will never be a lack of work. The only way there'd be a lack of work would be if there was a lack of people. And there, are no lack, there is no lack of people on this planet. So there will always be souls to reach for Jesus. That's job security. You want job security? Be a missionary. There will always be a need for you. And so there ought to be a spirit of excitement in relationship to the harvest being, being plentiful. But there also, secondly, ought to be a, a, a sense of urgency. A spirit of excitement, but also a sense 
of urgency. He says the harvest is plentiful. And even as I think, again, back to, to farming, you know, one of the farm families that I had in my church in northern Iowa, man, it was, it was all hands on deck. I mean, it was everybody they could possibly get. When it came time to harvest, once they started the harvest, they weren't going to stop. I mean, they'd rest a little bit. They'd get a little bit of sleep at night. But other than that, that's all they did for the entire two months or so. And why is it that they did that? Well, because in northern Iowa, about the beginning of November, it starts to get cold and it starts to snow. And so, and then the ground starts to freeze and you get all kinds of issues. So they had typically about two months where if they didn't get the harvest in, in time, it would snow and their corn would sit out there in the field. And if it sat out in the field over the wintertime, a lot of the corn would fall off the stalks and end up on the ground and they wouldn't get to harvest it. And so it's no wonder that they, were, that they had this sense of urgency. We've got to get this job done because winter is coming. And so even here, as Jesus speaks in terms of the plentiful harvest, I think it, it's important for us to understand that there ought to be a sense of urgency that the world needs Jesus. That billions of people need Jesus Christ and we have a limited amount of time to get the gospel to them. For you, for me, it's called our lifetime. I have a limited amount of time to do everything I can to, to either personally get the gospel to other people or to influence others to, to help in getting the gospel to other people, part of why I'm here, because there's only a certain amount of, of time before winter comes and it's, it's too late. And so there ought to be a, a sense of urgency in our souls and in our hearts about the size of the harvest, excitement and urgency, especially when we think of that harvest being plentiful. Think of the plentiful nature of the harvest. You know, it, it's, it's the har- size of the harvest is greater today, of course, than it was in Jesus' day. But Jesus said even in his day, the harvest is plentiful. Population experts tell us that probably 200 million people lived on planet Earth in, at Jesus lifetime, in Jesus' lifetime or during his lifetime. 200 million people probably was all the world's population was when Jesus Christ was alive. It's amazing as you think about and study world population growth, what, is, what has happened since then. It took us from, from that year that Jesus was alive in the you know, 8030s approximately. Um, it took from then all the way to 18 of, 1804 for us to reach 1 billion people on planet Earth. Isn't that really, really amazing? It took us all those centuries. But you know how long it took us to double that? From 1804, it only took us to 1927 to reach 2 billion people, 123 years. And then 1961 to reach 3 billion people, only 34 more years to get to 3 billion. 1974 to reach 4 billion. 1999 to reach 6 billion. And we reached 7 billion on October 31st of 2011. According to the United Nations, the world's population will reach 8 billion souls in 2023. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time wrapping my mind around 8 billion souls. 8 billion souls by 2023. Here's something else that, that I read that really grabbed my attention. and It was this, that population experts tell us that 100 billion people have lived on planet Earth since creation, approximately. So think about that. So if in 2023 we'll have 8 billion people, 8 billion souls on planet Earth, what that means is this. If, and if 100 billion people altogether have ever lived on planet Earth, you realize that 8%, think about this, 8% 
of the souls that have ever lived, ever, are alive right now. Isn't that shocking? To realize that 8% of the souls that have ever lived are living right now on planet Earth and we have an opportunity to give them the gospel of Christ so they don't just live on planet Earth, so they live forever in heaven with Jesus Christ? That ought to give us a sense of urgency, a sense of passion, a sense of even just our hearts being moved with compassion like Jesus in verse 36 when we realize that 8% of the souls that have ever lived are alive right now on planet Earth. One of the words that, that pops into my mind as I think about that is, is the word opportunity, because that's what that is. Opportunity to take the gospel. And, and the unique opportunity in, in 2020. We think about what it takes for a missionary to take the gospel to somebody in 2020 compared to 1920. I have the opportunity of serving on a council of a, of a mission agency called Baptist Mid-Missions, and Baptist Mid-Missions this, this fall will celebrate its 100th anniversary. One of the things that they've been doing uh, as a part of their 100th anniversary is they've been highlighting what has happened in missions, especially their mission agency over the course of the last 100 years, and it's really incredible in terms of the, what it took to get a missionary. Of course, the, 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 the beginning stages of Baptist Mid-Missions was in, was in Africa, and in the central portion of Africa, that's why they're called Baptist Mid-Missions, because their founder wanted to reach the middle part of the continent of Africa because nobody had taken the gospel there at that point. But one of the things you, you learn as you, as you study that history of Baptist Mid-Missions is what it took to get a missionary there then, and all the months it took for them to even get there, the fact that they didn't have any type of medical treatment to speak of, and so many of them died as a result of the diseases they contracted and things like that, they didn't, and they didn't have any of the modern conveniences, whether it be the, 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 the airplane to get you there, or a computer, or a cell phone, or internet, or any of those things. That's all changed. And so there's an opportunity. We can take the gospel to people so much more quickly and, and so much more effectively, at least from that side of things, than, than ever before. There's an opportunity for us to do that in terms of travel, in terms of technology. One of the ministries we support at our church is Arabic outreach ministries. And you know what their primary means of reaching Muslims is? It's through phone apps. It's through apps where Muslims are reading the Bible for the first time ever. They're reading of Jesus Christ. They're studying the Scripture in the privacy of their own home without probably anybody else knowing that they're doing, doing this, learning about Jesus Christ, and they're coming to faith in Christ through their phone, through their cell phone. And, and all kinds of websites that they're developing as well in relationship to that because of the opportunity. Eight billion souls that we have an opportunity to reach for Christ. And so the, the, the opportunity is, is worldwide, but at the same time, the, the opportunity is, is also local. I think when I think of local, I think of the mainland, USA, because that's where I live. But there, there are amazing opportunities on the mainland too. You know, one of the things that shocked me was that over 50 million people in America claim absolutely no religious affiliation. None whatsoever at all. Actually, they've, they've developed a new term for them. They're called nuns, not N-U-N-S. N-O-N-E-S, nuns. Because what that means is they don't have any, any sense of faith, any sense of belief system at all. They're nuns. And so not, there's an opportunity to reach, reach folks like that for Christ, opportunities abound for us to reach souls for Jesus Christ. And so, 8 billion people. But at the same time, 
As we think about 8 billion people and have a hard time wrapping our minds around the size of the harvest, I think it's important for us to remember that it's not just about reaching the 8 billion, it's also about reaching the one. It's about reaching the one. Because I don't know about you, but I would get overwhelmed. If I'm supposed to reach all 8 billion people, how in the world am I going to do that, right? And so it's not just about reaching the 8 billion, but it's really truly about reaching the one. And as I was reflecting on that, I thought back over in some examples, and my wife and I even were talking about this, just some examples from our ministries over the years of, of the ones. The ones. I think of a young man that was in a group home that uh, had, I had opportunity to go pick up, and he had no idea of anything about Christianity. I was a youth pastor at the time. As a matter of fact, I was Mark Javot's youth pastor. I didn't know Mark was here until a week ago, and we reconnected, and so it's great to see Mark. A little bit older than back in the day, but... Uh, Anyway, um, this, this young man uh, came from a group home, and I remember trying to, trying to reach him for Christ and witness to him and, and then disciple him after he trusted Christ as a Savior. And one of the things that, that he was the first person that, I, that I'd ever had a Bible study with who had no idea what the Bible was. I mean, he had no idea. So we had to start with, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. No idea. There are these things called chapters and verses. Because he would listen in church and, and you know, the pastor would announce, you know, turn, take your Bible and turn to Mark 8.35 or whatever. And he didn't know what 8.35 meant. And so I remember seeing him come to Christ and being able to disciple him. And he was one of the, one of the ones uh, among the eight billion. I, I think of, of another young man in the youth group, and these are both youth group examples, but another young man by the name of Jason. And Jason was, was a teenage alcoholic. Um, he lived for the weekends to get plastered by age 17. That was his entire focus in life. And as a result of one of the other kids in youth group witnessing to him and reaching out to him, he came to youth group and came to know Christ as his Savior. And, and his life completely changed. I mean, completely turned away from, from alcohol. And, and that's one of the ones among the 8 billion. I think of a man by the name of Les. Les was a, was a, a Vietnam War veteran. And Les, um, while he was in Vietnam, was a sniper. So his, his job was to kill the bad guys from a long ways away. And uh, he did that so well that when Vietnam ended, the military kept him. At first, I think, and I don't know all the details of this, but at first I think he was actually still in the military, but eventually he became non-military, somehow connected to the CIA, and found himself in South America a lot. And from what I understand, he found himself in South America because they would send him in to be the guy that would take out the bad guys with the drug cartels from a long ways away. And one of the things that Les struggled with, as I had opportunity to witness to Les, was, the, was whether or not God could forgive him because he had, he'd killed so many people. As a matter of fact, part of his testimony was this, that when you're a sniper and you may be a thousand yards away from your target, sometimes you don't hit your target. Sometimes you hit somebody you weren't supposed to hit. And so the guilt in, in Les's heart was just overwhelming that how could God forgive me for killing an innocent bystander instead of the bad guy? Because that had happened in his life. And so Les had to come to the realization that it didn't matter what he had done and how many people he had killed, that, that Christ could forgive him no matter what. And Les trusted Christ as his Savior, one among the billions I think of Jeff. Jeff was a bodybuilder. Jeff was this big, strapping African-American guy. 
And uh, I mean, his biceps were like, you know, the size of my, my calves, maybe bigger than that, actually, and because he lived to lift weights. But Jeff had been in and out of relationships. As a matter of fact, uh, I think he had, when, when I met him, I think he had children from four or five different women. Never married any of those women. He referred to all of them as, as his baby mamas. They were his baby mamas. And, and when I met him, he was finally married for the very first time in his life. He was probably, I don't know, in his late 30s, maybe pushing 40 by that point in time. And Jeff had no idea about salvation, and, and we had opportunity to, to, to have a Bible study. It was through a Bible study that, that Jeff also uh, placed his faith in Christ. One of the ones, one among the billions. And, and other stories, I think of more recently a, a Catholic man that, that started coming to our church. He, he, would go, he would go to Mass on Saturday night uh, at the Catholic church, and then come to church at the Baptist church on Sunday morning. And then he'd listen to the preaching of God's word. He'd catch me, always catch me out, out in the foyer and tell me about how much better it was in the Catholic church. Uh, I mean, on, on lots of different fronts, too. It wasn't, I mean, one of the things he was just amazed at, he's like, you preach right from the Bible. I've never heard anybody ever like, preach from it. I've heard people preach about it, but never from it. And he was amazed by that. But then he also, he would point out other things like, the kids here are behaved. What is up with that? You know, and the song service is meaningful. The, I love the songs and all these other things. And so Bob and I started having a Bible study together. And again, eventually, actually, he, he didn't trust Christ with me. I, I went to have another Bible study with him, and I could tell something had changed. And so I asked him what he had thought about in relationship to the Bible study since the last time. And he said, I believe it. I said, well, what do you believe? He says, I, I believe it. What, everything we've been studying about the fact that I'm a sinner and that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I believe it. And he had trusted Christ on his own as, as his personal Savior. And so I share all those with you tonight because I know there's a tendency as we think about the size of the harvest to be so overwhelmed by it and think, 8 billion people, what in the world can I do? Or even what in the world can we do for 8 billion people? You know what you can do? You can do one person at a time. Reaching one soul at a time for Jesus Christ. So don't let the size of the harvest overwhelm you. Instead, let it give you a spirit of excitement and urgency that there are people out there that need Christ and your time is limited. And so that's a call to each and every one of us to share the gospel of Christ with people. The size of the harvest. Secondly then tonight, think in terms with me of the shortage of the workers. Because Jesus goes on to say, not just that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. There weren't enough workers in Jesus' day, and the need is even greater today. He left the task to us, after all. And, and sadly, as I think about Christianity, especially in the mainland United States, we're reaching a point on the mainland where we may be faced with some crises in relationship to missions and churches and pastors. One of the things that has happened in the United States in the last really 12, 10 or 12 years is that Bible college after Bible college after Bible college is closed. The Bible college that trained my pastor, that was my pastor when I was a teenager, Pillsbury Baptist Bible College, is no, is no longer. The Bible college that, that trained your pastor and my wife and a lot of other people, Northland Baptist, is no longer, okay? at least as a Bible college. 
And, you, and there are other Christian colleges, Clearwater, Tennessee Temple, other, other ones like that, that in the course of just this decade or so are closing one after the other. On top of it, mission agencies are not seeing nearly as many people say, God's called me to missions. Again, I'm, I have connections with a couple of different mission agencies. One of those mission agencies, one, one summer only had one couple as, as candidates for the mission agency. Another that I'm familiar with has, has only had a couple in the last five years in terms of mission agencies. And then on top of it, one of the things we're facing in Ohio is that there are not enough men that are qualified and called to be pastors to fill all the pulpits of all the churches. And so at any given time, in our even just association of churches that I'm a part of in the state of Ohio, which is about 100 churches, there are 12 to 15 churches that are pastorless, and some of those have gone two and three years without a pastor because they can't find one. And so the, the shortage of, of laborers is, is significant. I, I know one of, one of my friends is, is the president of Faith Baptist Bible College, and one of the things he has said is that we get more calls and inquiries about churches saying, send us a pastor. We need a pastor. Do you have a recent graduate than we can ever fill? Aren't enough graduates to fill the opportunities? And so as I, as I think about that, one of the things that, that I've come to realize is that the closure of those schools and the Mission agencies and the significant situation in the churches is not really the problem itself. It's a symptom of the problem. It's a symptom of the problem. The problem is this, is that our churches are producing fewer ministry-minded people because after all, whose job is it? It's not the job of the seminary. It's not the job of the Bible college. It's not the job of the mission agency. It's the job of the local church to, to recognize, the book of Acts makes that clear, to recognize the call of individuals called to ministry and to send them out. And it's also the fault of people in those churches who are saying no. I mean, does it seem, does it seem to fit the, the nature of God that he would call fewer when the need is so great? Or is it that fewer are willing to listen to the call? So as I think about this, I think there are probably a number of reasons why there's a shortage of workers, at least in 2020. One is unsurrendered believers. Because believers that, that say, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be a missionary. I've heard, you know, I know it's not going to be easy. I know I won't make much money. I know this, that, that. And they can come up with a whole long list of reasons why not to instead of, okay, God, if you want me to, I will. As I think about my own life and testimony, that's what I grappled with as a teenager, sensing God's call in my life that God wanted to meet me to be in ministry and thinking, but I want, a, I want a job where I'll make lots of money. I want an easy life. I don't want to be a pastor. And at the time, I, I thought maybe God was calling me to be a missionary too. I don't want to be a missionary. I want to live my life. But I had to come to the point where I realized that I would be absolutely miserable living my life and joyful living Christ's life. As a matter of fact, the missionary came and preached that very, that very message in my little church in southeastern Minnesota when I was probably 17 years old. I don't remember the whole rest of his sermon, okay? But I do remember, Harold Dark was his name, and he was a missionary to the Central African Republic. I do remember him saying, you will never be happy unless you're totally surrendered to the will of God. You will never be happy unless you're totally surrendered to the will of God. And it was like Harold Dark made that one, little, that one little statement just for my heart. For me to be willing to say, okay, God, I'll go, I'll do, I'll, I'll be whatever you want me to, I'll follow your will for my life. 
because I knew I would never be happy unless I was totally surrendered to the will of God. And tonight, perhaps, you're someone who's struggling with God's call in your life, and you're thinking, well, I don't want to, and I, I have these plans, and I have those plans. You will never be happy unless you're totally surrendered to the will of God. Perhaps the reason there's such a shortage in 2020 is because of so many unsurrendered believers. Maybe you're one of them. Another reason, it's not original with me, it's actually from a book uh, entitled The Vanishing Ministry in the 21st Century, and this reason is brought up by Woodrow Kroll, the writer of that book, which, by the way, if you've not read that book, it's powerful. But another reason, one of the ones he proposes is this, is that one of the reasons there's a shortage of, of pastors and missionaries in our day is because of wrong parental goals. Wrong parental goals. What does he mean by that? What he means by that is that we, so many American Christians want their kids to have it better than they did. And so their goal for their children is success. Their goal for their children is to have more than they had. To experience the quote-unquote American dream and, and all the things that came with that. And so he, he, he says something along these lines. What a shame it is that people in Bible-believing churches give their babies, baby dedication, give their babies to the Lord when they're tiny, when they're little, and then take them back right before they graduate from high school. Because they have plans for their children that are altogether different than the Lord's plans. As a youth pastor, I, I know I saw some of that, where the counsel mom and dad would give was, don't go to a Christian college, don't go to a Bible college. After all, you won't be able to get a good job and, work, and make lots of money there. Instead of, what's God's call in your life? What does God want you to do with your life? So I would challenge even parents here tonight, you know, what are the conversations you have with your children when it comes to education? Are they, are they conversations about go to a college that will prepare you to serve the Lord, whatever that looks like, or just to make money? And it doesn't mean everybody has to go to a Christian college. It doesn't mean everybody has to go to Bible college. But at least there ought to be the mindset of, is this helping you so you will serve the Lord better in some way, shape, or form? I know when I was in high school, one of the things we heard all the time was everybody ought to consider at least one year of Bible college. As a matter of fact, that was my, my wife's parents' rule. You had to go to Bible college one year, no matter what. Just, just to, to, again, find God's will for your life. And I think that was good counsel. It's so different than the counsel that's given by a lot of parents today. So perhaps one of the reasons, one of the reasons unsurrendered believers, another reason is wrong parental goals. And then another one that kind of fits right along with this, and that is, is that perhaps it's because we are training a generation of materialists. Again, this is something that Woodrow Kroll emphasizes in, in his book about the vanishing ministry in the 21st century. We're, we are training materialists. What does that mean? We as Americans are giving our children so much stuff so much stuff that the idea of self-denial and sacrifice is actually quite repugnant to them. I mean, think about it. Think, think about from the devices that once upon a time you could have never even imagined having, let alone every one of your children having, you know, to all the other material things that we tend to give our children the more affluent we become, um, so that the very idea of maybe having to live somewhere or be somewhere where, where none of those things are possible is foreign and perhaps even repugnant. I mean, again, even as a youth pastor, I was amazed by how rich my teenagers were. Now, I lived in a, 
in a, and ministered in a, in a middle-class suburb, suburban community, okay? And so there was affluence there just because of the nature of where I was. But on top of it, these kids typically, teenagers, they, they typically worked a part-time job while they were in high school and didn't have any, any bills. And so if they had a part-time job, that meant that they may have up to $100 a week to just blow on whatever they wanted to do and, and use it in whatever way they wanted to do. I don't know about you, but my wife doesn't give me 100 bucks a week to spend and blow on whatever I want to do. And, and so these teenagers literally were driving nice cars and had everything you could imagine and doing all these things, and, and they were really living quite well for themselves as 16-year-olds. And so the, the idea of, of sacrifice and the idea of, of self-denial actually could become repugnant to a young person when, they, when they've lived a life of materialism that in some way, shape, or form may be even fed by their parents and encouraged by mom and dad. And so we're training materials. Perhaps that's another way. There, there's, another, there's, there's a long list, by the way, in that, in that book, and so I've just given you a couple of those, and, and you may add to the list. The key is this. In relationship to the shortage of workers, are we a part of the solution or part of the problem? I mean, parents, are you a part of the solution or a part of the problem? You as an individual, are you totally surrendered to Christ to the point that you are part of the solution rather than a part of the problem because you are willing to go and to be and to do whatever God wants you to go and be and do? The only way there will be less of a shortage of workers in the harvest is if we're part of the solution and not a part of the problem. Would you leave all to serve Christ? I know there's a tendency for us to think that that's you know, something God would want a young person to do, but maybe you're somebody here today that's middle-aged. Maybe you're someone here that's retired or about to retire. That God may be saying to you, I want you to go. Are you willing to go wherever he may be calling to solve, at least in a small part, the problem of the shortage of workers? The size of the harvest, the shortage of workers. And then finally, the, the solution of prayer. Notice what Jesus says in verse 38. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I think I've oftentimes been puzzled by that statement. Pray the Lord of the harvest to do what? To send forth laborers into the harvest. He doesn't say as a solution, he doesn't say, you go. We know he says that later, right? But he doesn't say that here. He doesn't even say pray for the salvation of the, harvest, the people in the harvest. He doesn't just say pray for the salvation of people across the world. We, again, we know he says that later in another portion of Scripture. But he says pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. You realize that praying often makes the one praying the answer to their own prayers. As you pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers, into the harvest, perhaps God will lay it upon your heart to be the answer to that prayer. Someone put it this way, when we pray, as he commanded, we will see what he saw, we will feel what he felt, and do what he did. The best thing that you can do to become a part of the harvest of souls is to begin praying and asking God to send workers, laborers, into his harvest field. And while you are praying that prayer, you need to ask yourself the question, am I 
the answer to my own prayer? Am I the answer to my own prayer? When I was pastoring in northern Iowa at at Holmes Baptist Church, one of the things that we did while I was there is our church celebrated its 100th anniversary. And it's always a special time for a congregation to, to reach a milestone like that. It was really, really fun in terms of I got to learn a lot about the history of the church. The church was actually founded as a result of a train car evangelist in the year 1900, where they actually made a chapel car that came on the back of a train and would actually stop in towns, pull off onto a spur, and they'd have revival meetings in this chapel car that would seat like 40 people. They'd have this, this, little, this little church on wheels. Actually, that, there's a book entitled The Church on Wheels that describes, because these chapel cars went all over the Midwest. And my church was the fruit of that, that evangelistic effort of a chapel car, of all things. So many people got saved in one summer in Little Holmes, Iowa, that the evangelist actually stayed there, helped them build their first building, organized the church before he moved on. Incredible story. But one of the things I also found out about the church was that the church was 100 years old, and and in its history, had only sent out one missionary for a short period of time and a couple of Christian school teachers. And I thought to myself, a hundred years old? And that's all that has come out in terms of Christian servants from this church? And so one of the things we did is we, we, we actually had a whole list of goals that we entitled Faith for the Future. But one of those goals was in relationship to that. One of the specific goals, we put it on the wall, it was in the prayer bulletin all the time. One of those specific goals was this, that we would pray that God would call 10 individuals to the, to the Lord's work from this church. That we would not be content with what happened in 1940-something or 1950-something when one missionary was called out short-term, but that God would call more and more. And so we began to pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, we never reached the 10, okay, that, that goal. But it was neat to see as people prayed what God started to do. I was the pastor of that church for about nine years, and in that nine-year period of time, eight of our young people went to Bible college. Uh, again, there had been a long time where, where none of our young people were going to Bible college. I think that was the fruit of those prayers, of people praying the Lord of the harvest to send forth labors into his harvest. Now, not all those who went to Bible college ended up being in ministry, but of those who went, one is now a pastor, uh, and two of them are back at the church as deacons, which I think is significant in and of itself, that they are back at the church. They were young people, and now they're, now they're back at the church as deacons. There's another that's still in seminary, as a result of those prayers and this training for ministry. And, and so I look at that and say, that's what this is talking about. That's what this is talking about for harvest. That harvest would continue to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest, that you would never get content with enough for this, for this church, for this Bible college, that you would never be content with that, that you would always pray the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest. And then as you pray that, you would always ask yourself the question, am I the answer to my own prayer? Is God asking me, is God calling me to be the one that would be an answer to that prayer to the Lord of the harvest? And so I would ask you tonight, how are you helping in the harvest? What's your attitude toward the harvest? Is it an attitude of excitement? Is it an attitude of urgency? Or is it an attitude, well, what can I do for 8 billion people? I hope you realize you can do something for one. For one. What are you doing in in terms of 
being willing? Are you part of the answer to the shortage of workers? And are you praying the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers into his harvest?